Shalom Echem, Erev Tov, we are together and we are studying Rabban Gamliel's life. Uh, Rabban Gamliel was not mentioned explicitly by the Rambam, and uh, instead he went to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai and his students. We focused on a number of the students of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, and I told you that really we should have began focusing on Rabban Gamliel in the beginning, but we would not truly understand Rabban Gamliel if we did not understand a few of the other key players that were relevant in his life, namely Rabbi Yezer ben Hokunus and Rabbi Yehoshua ben Chanina, who we've spent the last few weeks discussing at length. And so if you look at the encyclopedia, we're on page 3 of the PDF, 195 or 196 really of the Hebrew text of the encyclopedia. And we are told the following. Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel, we know there are more than one Rabban Gamliel. There's the grandfather, there's the son and the grandson. We're dealing with the second Rabban Gamliel. He's known as the Rabban Gamliel Diavne. So generation number two, Rabban Gamliel. Nesi Sanhedrin Biavne. He was the head of the Sanhedrin, the prince of the Sanhedrin in Yavne. Basrot Hashanim Shalachai Chuban and the decades after the Chuban. He's from the descendants of Hillel. And he's the grandson of Rabban Gamliel. So when I said father, son, grandson, I didn't mean actually father, son, grandson, but generations, as in generation one, generation two, generation three, and there are generations in between them. But there's Hillel the first, Hillel the second, and Hillel the third. It seems to me that the reason why he's not mentioned here is because he is the head of the Sanhedrin. And his purpose in this whole story though it's rabbinic, is also political. Yes? And if we open up... You've been so still for the last couple of minutes, Rabbi Yaradan, I thought the free the screen froze. No, I'm alive and well, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> okay. Based on what is told to us in the Talmud, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai requested from the general who then became the Roman emperor on the eve of the destruction, that one of his requests for Jerusalem, even though it was going to be destroyed, was that he should give him Yavne and its sages. That's source one in your Sefer Yashin. If you remember, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is smuggled out of the walls of Jerusalem by his students. He comes out of the walls and he meets this Vespasian, who is now the general, but later the emperor of Rome. And he tells him, listen, we're going to destroy Yerushalayim. If there's anything you want to ask from me, I will grant your request. And he asks him for three things. The first, if you look in source number one, Give me please Yavne and its sages. Meaning, leave me a place of Torah where we can establish a new Sanhedrin to study Torah. 
please give me the lineage of Rabban Gamliel, meaning don't harm the house of the Prince of Israel. And please give me doctors to heal Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Tzadok who was fasting, if you remember, all of these years because he knew Yerushalayim was going to be destroyed. So the Gemara asked a question. If he had one request from Vespasian, what should he ask for? Yeah, please don't destroy the Bet Mikdash. I mean, don't destroy Yerushalayim. Why is he asking for Yavne? The reason? Because he knew that Jerusalem would never be given to him. He mm. knew that that was a done deal. Very good. Marlene, that's the answer. You have to know to pick your battles wisely. In order to win the war, you have to lose battles. And he knew that Yerushalayim was a lost battle. We weren't going to get the Romans to give us Yerushalayim. What we could do, though, was to get the Romans to give us what we needed. And those were three things. Rabbi Tzadok, that's a separate entity, but two things. The first, allow us a place where we can continue not just studying Torah, but ruling over Torah. Having a Sanhedrin, it's crucial. The second, to make sure that our royal lineage, we still have a Nasi, we still have a prince. You should know, the academics, they struggle very much with Rabban Gamil. Was he really a prince? Is it that the Romans allowed the Jewish people to continue to self-govern with a prince? Is it that the Jewish people did it anyways, even though the Romans didn't like it? And that because of that, the Romans ultimately accepted Rabban Gamliel as the leader of the Jewish people, not intentionally, but that's what happened. Or is it that Rabban Gamliel was appointed by the Roman government, and therefore you find much contradiction between him and the rabbis because he's a political entity appointed by the Romans. I, I, you know that I don't believe the second two. Uh, but the Maaseh, here you have a situation where we have two parts of a Jewish government that are still intact. Yes, we are occupied. Yes, the Romans have taken over Yerushalayim. But we have a Sanhedrin and we have a Nasi. And those are two things, like I've told you many times before, that the Sephardic community maintained almost, almost until 1948. With the establishment of the State of Israel, we lost political autonomy as a self-governing Jewish nation in exile. And the rest of that is why we're still sitting here in San Diego. Uh, let's continue in the encyclopedia. Keep this PDF open on the other tab if you can. Don't close it. Rabban Gamliel mofia lefanenu kechad amanhigim hagedonim. Rabban Gamliel appears to us, before us, as one of the great leaders. Sheyoda linhog ba'am ba'achat ashot hachamorot biyoter b'dirayama. That he knew how to lead the Jewish people in one of the most crucial turning points in Jewish history. The end of an era of the Bet HaMikdash and the beginning of our occupation by the Romans in Eretz Yisrael. Rosh ma'avaya v'shifotav haya l'achad et ha'am kulo m'saviv l'merkaz ruchani echad b'ibud merkaz ha'amidini k'day shloit patzel ha'am l'kitot v'adot It's important to understand that Rabban Gamliel's mission statement which we have discussed before in the war between Rabbi Lezer ben Hokonus and the Sanhedrin is to rally the Jewish people around one halachic code that all Jewish people should observe Judaism the same way. The reason? He was afraid that if infighting were to gain traction in the Jewish community, especially once we lost our political headquarters, what would happen to the Jewish people? Not only would we fall apart, but the Romans would see our infighting as a chance to destroy the Jewish people. <clears throat> and on page 197, <laughs> He knew how to undertake this task. And you see that Rabban Gamliel works tirelessly. We're going to discuss for the coming shiurim. His entire life mission was dedicated towards uniting the Jewish people 
and making sure that the Jewish destiny will not be interrupted by Roman destruction of Yerushalayim. Amen haya likba halachai chat kol Yisrael b'chol bezurah. He worked hard to make sure that the Jewish diaspora, all of the Jews in the world, would have the same halakha. Thanks to him, in Yavne, in the new Sanhedrin, we find that halakha is established like Beit Hinen. The wars between Beit Hinen and Beit Shammai were of yesterday, and the new Sanhedrin unanimously accepted upon themselves the rulings of Beit Hinen. And we know that that's natural. Why? The Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai is educated by Hillel. Rabban Gamliel is from the camp of Hillel. We mentioned, though, that when Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukanus fought with the Sanhedrin, one of the Chachamim referred to him as one from the house of Shammai. Now, whether that meant he was under some type of excommunication, or literally because his halachic positions were reminiscent of Shammai is a matter of machloket, but we know that the Sanhedrin that is refounded in Yavne is a Sanhedrin that is connected to Hillel. If you look at the PDF source sheet that I gave you, I quoted you from the Talmud Yerushalmi in Yevamot. Baruch Hashem Sefaria has recently added, Mamash in the last two or three weeks, the Talmud Yerushalmi with an English translation. I don't think that we realize how big of a deal that is. So many sources that we have from Talmud Yerushalmi were not accessible to the English-speaking public previously, at least not on a wide scale. People who own sets or volumes. But now you can just click and open up any Talmud Yerushalmi that you want, and many times you can cross reference texts with the Babli and the Yerushalmi. And this is one of those texts in Source 2. Uh, it's a long list of all the things that Bechamai and Betirel argued about, and they're not just one or two things. And so for Rabban Gamliel to break down that division in the Jewish people and to rally them around the Halakha of Betirel was a tremendous accomplishment that he spent much of his life fighting for and ultimately was successful about. In Yavne, they sat down and every single halakha they went through and they decided on those halakhot and which, which way did they decide? How did they do it? Do you remember this methodology? did not like it. What was this uh, method that they used? Do you remember when the students of Rabbi Yezab and Hukunus come to him in his exile and he asked them, what chidush did you learn in the Ben Midrash? Which new thing did you learn? And they would tell him and he'd never like to answer and he would tell them, they don't need a vote. I already have a tradition, that this is the halakha. What was the method they used? Voting. This voting, nimnu v'gamu, nimnu v'gamu, nimnu v'gamu. This method, Rabbi Yezab and Hukunus viewed it as the furthest thing from the truth. There is a truth. Why do you need your counting? Nonetheless, they sat and they voted and they decided halachot in that fashion. When people think today, how could we possibly get Am Yisrael to rally around one halakha? So you know that in my heart of hearts, everything should be like the Shukhan But unfortunately, that's not the case. Imagine if Chachmei Yisrael would gather together. I don't care, you, every group you want to bring me from. And they sat. It's a real Chachamim. Chachamim that know how to rule halachot. And they sat. They took a Shulchan Aruch from A to Z. Every single halakha. Nimnu v'gamu. Every single halakha. They would decide. Um, and not, no exceptions. Can't have exceptions. The exceptions would break the whole... Per- everything would fall apart if this Sanhedrin would not be authoritative. Even if they don't want to truly be a Sanhedrin. But at the very least, they decide. 
Shechita, how is it going to be? Chalak, not chalak. Chalita, we're going to do chalita, milicha, milicha. And ultimately, they could all get their followers together to rally around one halachic ideology. This is exactly, if you think it cannot be done, it's exactly what happened in Yavne. They were sitting around reconciling various Jewish traditions, and they were successful, with a few exceptions. People like Abilez of Anuknus, who stand in the way, in Rabban Gamliel's eyes, of letting the Jewish people unite. As much as we felt sympathy towards Abilez of Anuknus, we have to understand from here the perspective of Rabban Gamliel. He is saving the Jewish people from destruction of the Ben Mikdash, and what he needs is cooperation of Am Yisrael and the Chachamim of the Jewish people. The worry of the prince. He did not want the Torah to turn into two Torahs. There's a halakha in the Torah. It says, Lotit Godedu. What is the biblical understanding of Lotit Godedu? I mentioned it recently in the Sashid. Lotit Godedu, when we mourn, we're not allowed to pull hairs out of our head. You're familiar with this verse. Chachamim have a different understanding. What does it mean, Lotit Godedu? Lotasu? Right, Lotasu, I've never heard that translated as little clicks, but I like it. Lotasu, agudot, agudot. Don't become groups and groups and groups. Jewish people are forbidden from separating into subgroups. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating conversation. Why? What's the reason? That the Torah should not be perceived as two Torah. It can be that you have two people in the same place, both observing halakha, and both of them doing things differently. Some would argue, like Chachamavad Yosef did, that unfortunately we've already we've, we've crossed that red line so long ago that today everybody already knows. Oh, you see someone standing during this, you see them sitting, you see them doing Everyone knows it's Sephardis, Ashkenazis, Hasidis. Everyone knows why people are doing this differently. And no one perceives that anymore as two Torah. But Rabban Gamliel was doing his best to make sure that the Jewish people would not show that the Torah was two. V'shalait paleg ha'am kitot kitot. The, the group wouldn't, the Jews wouldn't break up with the subgroups. We find his, uh, not obsession, but his, his goal to unite the Jewish people in a number of different instances scattered throughout the Talmud. Even his brother-in-law, who was his brother-in-law? Do you remember when they throw him out of the Sanhedrin? Where is Rabban Gamliel? Look at source 3. Va'af Rabban Gamliel haba b'svinam. Rabban Gamliel was on a ship, on a boat, in that moment when they threw Rabbi Yezah out of the Sanhedrin. Amad alav nachshol letavo. A wave came, letavo, to drown him. Like Paro. Amar, he said, kemdumeli she'en zela b'shvel Rabbi Yezah ben Hukunus. It seems to me that the only reason this wave is trying to drown me is because I have allowed harm to happen to Rabbi Yezab and Hukunus, my brother-in-law. Amad al-Aglav, he stood on his feet and he said, Master of the universe, It's known before you. I didn't throw him out of the Sanhedrin for my own sake. And I didn't even do it for the sake of the home of my father, from the, the royal family. I did it for your sake. So the Jewish people will not be overcome with arguments in Halakha. And at that moment, the ocean rested. You find Rabban Gamliel, 
was even willing to throw out his own brother-in-law because the goal of uniting Am Yisrael was more important even than his family obligations. When I went to yeshiva in Baltimore, the Menahel of the yeshiva was known to be a very tough rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Tenner, Arav Shalom. He was known for many things. One thing, he was a very strict personality. What do I mean by strict? If curfew was 10.30 and you showed up at 10.31, tomorrow morning you'd be on an airplane back home, never to come back to the yeshiva, over. No discussions, no conversations, no nothing. There was no breaking rules. Not one time, two times, three strikes, one strike, you're out. And like that, he held a very tight ship. And you know, it was, it was hard. Because there were people that really didn't do something wrong. But the next day, they were gone. It definitely kept us in line. But I don't think we ever, ever really understood how much for Rabbi Taylor this wasn't a wasn't just out of strictness when he threw out his own son from the yeshiva for the same reason. And threw out his own grandson from the yeshiva for the same reason. Oh, but you're my grandfather. It's good. So, you're my father. I live here. How are you going to throw me out? Go find somewhere else to live. The moment we realized that he wasn't just picking on us. At the end of the day, he was trying to make order. And that order, we understood that even he was that way towards his own family. Rabban Gamliel you might accuse him of bullying other Chachamim. But it's his own family. It wasn't a bully. He knew that in order for Amisrael to survive, this is the path that Amisrael has to go down. He was charged. He, that was his, his job was the Nasi. At the end of the day, these executive decisions are his. He is the leader of the Jewish people politically and almost religiously. as the head of the Sanhedrin, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Okay, let's skip a little more. The last word line is We know that Rabban Gamliel by nature was a very humble person. He was a person who loved other people. He respected other people. No matter how soft and kind he was, any time it came to shaking up the foundations of the unity of Halakha that he was working so hard to build, he knew how to be as tough as he needed to be. There's an article written by Rabbi Chaim David Halavi about his rabbi, Rabbi Ben Zion Merechai Uziel. And he shows some 20 scenarios in which is a motivating factor in the halachic rulings of Rabbi Uziel. But towards the end, he says, don't think that Rabbi Uziel was always lenient. It's not the perception you should have. But there were times where he took very strictly the term of our rabbis, that if the law means that you have to tunnel through that mountain, you're going to walk right through that mountain. Meaning, if you need to be a piercing judgment, it will be piercing. And there are many cases where Rabban Ziel was not willing to compromise because he knew that by compromising or being lenient, even though that was his nature, something else much greater was going to be undermined. And that's exactly the life of Rabban Gamliel. At the end of the day, he is holding the office that is closest to the king of the Jewish people. He's the prince of the Jewish people. And that meant even keeping his friends in check. That means making sure that every single person in Am Yisrael respected the office of Nasi. Not for him, for the sake of the Jewish people. Not just for the sake of the Jewish people. For the sake of any generation that would come afterwards, there would be another Nasi. You had to make sure that the office of Nasi was respected. Choshesh hayat adir. He was constantly concerned. Shema horaat yachid timatzela tomchim. That any rogue halachic opinion would find supporters. And then that would become the halakha, against the opinion of the majority. And again, you'd be in the situation 
where the Torah becomes two Torah. Now, before I go further, many of us, and that's why we're here, are not fans of uh, centralized power and uh, one halachic size fits all, and especially not forcing those who are not mainstream to fit into a mainstream. And so I'm going to tell you what I told you then, and that is when there is a Sanhedrin, reality is different than when there is no Sanhedrin. Today, there is no Sanhedrin. Because there is no Sanhedrin, there is no one who has a monopoly over how halakha is understood. But when there is a Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim, and that Sanhedrin is loyal to the Torah, the decisions of the Sanhedrin are binding on all of us. And that's exactly why, for example, we view the rulings of the Talmud as binding. What does the Rambam say? That was the last time, the Talmud is the last time that that we had a Sanhedrin, meaning that a Bedin HaGadol in Yerushalayim, a Supreme Court in Jerusalem, ruled over halakhic matters. These are not opinions. The Talmud is not an opinion. The Talmud is the final law, as understood by the Rambam, codified by the Shulchan Aruch. These are legal opinions, these are legal rules. Am Yisrael accepted them together. It is our constitution, as you can imagine. Anything that happens afterwards, you're a rabbi in Germany, you're a rabbi in Spain, you're a rabbi in San Diego, wherever you are, you can make all kinds of rules for people who listen to you. But you have no right to compel other people to listen to your rulings because you're not a son of the Yeah? Right, the Sanhedrin is not necessarily elected, uh, but it is representative of different populations. Yeah. So the way the Sanhedrin is chosen is made up of different regions and different areas. That's why the members of the Sanhedrin are not always together, because they don't all live in Yerushalayim in the same yeshiva, in the same place. Meaning there is, for lack of a better term, we can say it in like an American way, like representation. In the Sanhedrin, yes. Correct. And then, but it's, they're still forming law. I don't care whether you're guy one or not, the law is the law. The law is the law, that's correct. So we asked me that I don't know my my uh, years very well. We're right after the destruction of the second Beit Hamikdash. After the destruction of the second Beit Hamikdash. Okay. So Roman occupation of Israel. Okay. Almost two thousand years ago. Yeah. yeah. So it's a year and a hundred. They say if you take the current year, and you subtract subtract from it, so two thousand twenty-two, you take away from it the word Chaim. Uh, so that's uh, sixty-eight. That'll be how many years ago we're talking about. One thousand nine hundred fifty-four years ago. That's the generation we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Now there are those who argue one year, two years each way, but yeah. this is the generation we're talking about. Afterwards. I don't actually know to tell you. Yeah, but it's the years after the destruction of the Bermigdash. So here you have um, an example of this. Pam, let's look together at the Tosefta. Now there's a few different Tosefta editions, but this Tosefta is put up by Rabbi Saul Lieberman. If you don't know anything about Rabbi Saul Lieberman, I highly recommend you order a $6 book from Amazon called uh, Rabbi Saul Lieberman and the Orthodox, something like that. It's put out by Rabbi Mar or Professor Mark Shapiro, originally from Scranton, uh, who who published a very small pamphlet. It's very small. You can finish it in a nighttime reading. 
about the evolution of orthodoxy in America and whether Rabbi Saul Lieberman was orthodox or not, standing at the helm of the Jewish Theological Seminary. You know, I don't really care much for these type of conversations, but it's very telling about how American Jewry has rewritten its own history. Fascinating. There's a time that our rabbis were traveling through a village of the Kutim on the road. And they brought before them vegetables. Rabbi Akiva jumped up and he took off Maser from these vegetables. tells him, How dare you? How, where did you get the, the courage, I mean, the audacity to violate the ruling of your colleagues that say that you don't have to take Maser from the vegetables of the Kutim? Who even gave you permission to do that? Amarlo, he tells them, Did I rule the halakha from the whole Jewish people? It's my vegetables that I took. I didn't tell anybody what to do. I didn't rule against my friend. I just took off myself from my vegetables. Amarlo, he tells him, You should know. When you took off myself from your vegetables, you established a new halakha in the Jewish people. Then your act of deviation from what we rule to be halakha in the Sanhedrin is going to cause the Jewish people, to now and think there are two different halachot regarding Masot. On the top of page 198, four lines down, He was very concerned regarding uniting the Jewish people when it came to the Jewish calendar. So there's two parts of the Jewish calendar. There's the monthly, and oh, and I know this is something you've been researching recently, the monthly, Meaning deciding when Rosh Chodesh is, when Rosh Chodesh is ultimately decides what the holidays are going to be and everything else that happened that month. And in the second part of that is the Ibu. The Ibu is like this year, we have two Adars, right? So it was just two Bishvat. We should really be two months away from Pesach. But this year, what did Chachamim give us? Another month. And our whole calendar is essentially reset because we've added a 13th month to this year. Now, for example, our cousins when they celebrate Ramadan, when they fast, they, their Ramadan falls out all over the year. It could be any time of the year that Ramadan pops up because they don't have this concept of Ibu where our rabbis have instituted certain years that we add a month in order to keep everything. That's why our Sukkot is always in the same season and our Pesach is always the same season and the summer is always through the Tisha B'Av and everything else. Everything runs on a cycle that matches the other years. Mishnah Perhaps before we get to the calendar. I mentioned to you when we studied about Rabbi Yoshua Mechanina that there is tension between him and Rabban Gamliel. Rabbi Yoshua is the rabbi of all the rabbis. Rabban Gamliel is the rabbi of the Sanhedrin and holds the office, the political office of prince. And we mentioned at the end of the last classes that when Rabban Gamliel came to visit Rabbi Yoshua, what did he notice about him? 
He was very poor. He says, wow, I can't believe you're so poor. And what did Rabbi Yoshua tell him? Woe to the generation that you are its leader. That you don't know how the Chachamim that you sit with and talk to, you don't know how poor they are. That theme of woe to the generation that you are its leader is a running theme in the life of Rabbi Yoshua as it relates to Rabban Gamliel. The two of them have had better days. And uh, there's a story about them traveling together. Now, why is Rabban Gamliel traveling? Tell me why, why he's traveling. Okay, he's a prince. So what's his, why would he travel? For political reasons. Where would he travel to, for example? Rome. Yeah, likely he was traveling to Rome. So this is from Masechet Horayot. Source 5. This is an incident in which Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua were traveling together on a ship. Now if you ever want context of any of these things, you can later just click on the source and it will take you to the Gemara itself and you can read what happens before and afterwards. Rabban Gamliel had some bread to eat and Rabbi Yehoshua had bread and also some food. So not just the bread. Shalim pita Rabban Gamliel. And when Rabban Gamliel finished eating his bread, Samach asulted Rabbi Yehoshua. He started eating the food of Rabbi Yehoshua. Meaning, hey, you want to share? And then took his part. Amar le, he asked Rabbi Yehoshua, Mi hava yadat, da did you know that we were going to be stuck, delayed in our travel so much that you even packed extra food? No. There's a star that comes out every 70 years and it causes the navigators on the ships to become lost, meaning they, they delay, they miscalculate their, their navigations. When I was packing, I said, Shema otanu. Maybe the star will come up and it will cause us to delay. Rabbanit, you hear, I'm not the only person who overpacks because maybe something might happen. <laughs> now, if I could tell you, there are some who understand. There are some who understand that the difference between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, this is just speculation, I'm not telling you here. Rabban Gamliel clearly travels a lot. Have you ever seen someone who travels a lot? They always travel lightly. They're so used to running from here to there, here to there. Those of us who travel once a year, once every two years, we can pack the whole world because we're not, we, we travel differently from each other. Now, it doesn't mean that that's always the case, but it could be. Rabban Gamliel is so used to traveling. One of the rabbis that I studied with, Rav Shlomo Katsin, should live and be well, he's always on an airplane. Always, always, always. That means that he always has his passport in his pocket. What do you mean always? It could be that today he'll be sitting here and they'll tell him, Rabbi, in two hours you're getting on a flight to Arizona and he'll get out of the shiur and get on a plane. That's how he works. His passport, again, was one of those with the extra pages, and they're like extra 100 pages, so you can fit more stamps in it. It's, it's already soft cover by now. It's worn, it's used, it's how, that's how it is. That's the life. My passport, I still have, when was the last time I traveled? Two years ago, internationally. Rabbi Yoshua is a little more cautious on this journey. So there's the star, once every 70 years. It also shows you two different types of personalities. One who's very practical and this is what I need, and one who is always looking out for potential issues that might come down the road. So what does Rabban Gamliel say? Amar le, Rabban Gamliel tells him, Kol kach biyadecha v'ata oleh b'svina. You're so smart. Like, that's so wise of you. And you still have to go in a ship to collect for money? That's how poor you are. Why is Rabbi Yoshua traveling? 
to collect money. He's poor. He has to go travel, maybe for himself, maybe for the Avachim and the Yeshiva, whoever he's traveling for. Rabbi Gamil says, such a wise man like you is so broke. You didn't use your wisdom to make money. Amalei tells him, if you're already wondering about me, you should worry about the two students that you have on dry land. You should worry about them. That they are able to calculate how many drops of water are in the ocean. For sure? No. They mean they were very brilliant people. They don't have bread to eat and they don't have clothes to wear. That's how poor they are. Don't look at me. I'm at least traveling for my parnasa. They don't even have clothes to wear. Rabban Gamliel is clearly concerned about them. So what does he do? Natan dato lehoshivam berosh. He decided maybe he would appoint them to lead one of his institutions. Rabban Gamliel, as the prince, is responsible for building yeshivot and schools and bateidin and all different places that he travels. So listen, I'll get them a job. These people don't have food. They don't have clothes. Let me get these rabbis employed. Kshala, when he came to dry land, shalach lehim. He sent a messenger to go call them. Vilobau, and they didn't come. Why didn't they come? He's offering them a job. They don't want the job. Why don't they want the job? I would say, why would someone not want to be a rabbi? But don't answer that question. Why would a rabbi choose not to be a rabbi? Not to accept an invitation as a rabbi. They were too humble. Not to be. They were too humble. They were afraid that running to go get a job would look like they wanted to go sit at the head of some bedin. Or it would come off as, oh wow, the, finally it's our big break, we're arrogant. This Gemara here, I think about this Gemara, I'm not exaggerating, at least every week. At least every week. Listen. Chazar v'shalach, he sent the second group of messengers to them. Ubao when they came. Amar lehem, he tells them, Kim duminatem she You think that I'm giving you some type of position of authority? Some honorable power position? Sarara ani notenachem. Avdut ani notenachem. says, I'm not giving you sarara. I'm giving you avdut. I'm giving you slavery. You think that being a rabbi is about power and respect? Being a rabbi is about being a servant of other people. You're not going to love this job. Harav Kuk, would sign his letters. Eved. A slave of a holy people in the holy land. A person should know that when they have a position of power, ultimately that's not a position of power. It's a position in which they could use to help other people. They work for other people. They represent other people. This make difference you're a rabbi of a you're a principal of a school, you're an elected official in government. Your job is not you. Your job are the people who you represent. Those people are who you serve. Don't be too humble to take this job. The job that I'm giving you is one of servitude, not one of power. Yeah. It's a question going back a little bit to Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. Why is it being antagonistic in the first place? You know, Rabbi Gamliel, I don't have an answer, and I want to tell you something. That in my opinion, sometimes, sometimes certain people Let's not talk about Rabban Gamliel, okay? 
It's talking about other people. Sometimes when a person, I'll borrow from common lingo, when a person has certain privilege, it's not that they're being rude, it's that they're simply not sensitive to what another person goes through. And as such, the, the comments that they make, it's kind of like, there's a famous queen, Marie Antoinette, was that her? Like, you know, if you don't have bread, just go eat cake. Meaning, only a person who, who always has food would tell you, oh, you don't have bread, so eat cake. Meaning, if I don't have bread, for sure I don't have cake. I, don't, I think that Rabban Gamliel may be in a similar type of place. He's, he's a nasi at the end of the day. And there is a certain level of distance and, and being removed from the problems of the common folk. That's exactly what leads Rabbi Yoshua later in history to tell him, woe to the generation that you lead it. Now, is that a, is that a flaw? Not a flaw. I'm up to the Mishnah Rosh The Mishnah Rosh it's the source six. about the star that appears once every 70 years. I know Haley's comet comes once every 70 or something years. And Rabbi Yoshua seems to have known that it was coming. You, are you familiar with any other are you familiar with any other rabbinic literature that talks about things that happen once every 70 years? I'll give you an example. Uh, very good. Was Sanhedrin that kills someone once every 70 years, but about a natural phenomenon happening every 70 years. Uh, oh, thank you. That was what I was looking for. Chachamim tell us that the chilazon, the snail that gives us the blue colored dye for our tzitzit, that it comes out of the ocean once every 70 years. Meaning that it's a rare thing to find that only once every 70 years it comes out of the earth, out of the sea. Which led all kinds of people to say, oh, this can't be tchelet, that can't be tchelet. You find it all, all over the place. When Chachamim used a certain saying, like once every 70 years, it's a tradition in my hands that they mean it's a very rare occurrence. It's like when we say once in a blue moon. When you say that in English, nobody's expecting to actually see a moon that's blue. When you say once in a blue moon, it's once every almost never. It's the same way Chachamim used these. So you enter once every 70 years of a Sanhedrin. Now it could be that over there there's legal ramifications, the number 70, but in general it means like a Sanhedrin that, that it executes people more often than it doesn't is considered a, a hanging court. Now you have similar statements with other numbers. So when our rabbis use words like 100, 100 doesn't necessarily mean 100. 100 means a lot of people. When Chachamim used the number 100, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in his Likutei Sichot, he has an interesting study of the students of Rabbi Akiva that died, the 24,000. And he showed you that 24,000 is a number that is used elsewhere in Talmudic literature, and 24,000 doesn't always mean 24,000. Or if it means 24,000, there's a reason why it uses that number. The same Rabbi Akiva who leaves his wife for 24 years, has 24,000 students that all die. There are certain numbers that Chachamim use in, in to borrow from the world of Chacham uh, Fa'ur. He would say that there's a... a what he called a layman tal. There's a certain mindset in which you say certain things and people know what you're talking about. But if you don't come from that mindset, then you won't actually understand what they're saying. There's certain things that Californians say. Someone just came here. Oh, my wife, today. My wife asked me, and I've, I've heard most of what my wife says, but this was something new for me. My wife asked me if the, she wanted to know if the mail came yet. And so there was no mail in the mailbox, but what was there were all those ads, the, you know, whatever they called, what do you guys call the ads in the newspaper? Trash, the things you line. Pack. What do you call it? Something pack. So, pack. Okay. The, the 
a big wad of like useless ads wrapped up on well, your roof. Well, they're useful. You can put them in the bottom of your birdcage. So, <laughs> so in New York, they clearly call this circular. It's a circular. Yeah. So she said, is that circular from yesterday? And I looked at her. I said, I don't actually know what you're asking me right now. What are you talking about? The circular in the mailbox is from yesterday? I said, oh, that thing's called a circular? Good to know. Because I guess it circulates or whatever. whatever. They circulated around different people's houses. But that would be something that it mean, circulate means something in English. But in a certain culture, a frame of reference, you use the word circular and it means something else. So we'd have words like that too, I'm sure, or phrases that we use in California that are not necessarily what other people might say. And the same thing with Chachamim. Chachamim have words, phrases they use that are intended to trigger a certain response from us. But if we're reading them, that's the danger of translating things into English or learning Torah not from the Chacham who learned it themselves, is we'll read something and think that we understand it, but really, so somebody's saying, oh, you should break a leg. And imagine a translator would hear that quote, Break a leg, you know, to break his leg. That's not what it means. How would, if you're writing a, captions for a, a TV show and someone says, go break a leg, and you're writing the caption into Hebrew, what would you write in Hebrew? What is the person wishing the guy going on stage? Yeah, that's what you would write. Only somebody who doesn't understand English, American English culture, would write, literally, go break your leg. And nobody would say that. The same thing with Chachamim, when they use this. I don't, I don't, get stuck on when Chachamim tell us, it's a very good question, 70 years, once every 70 years, for me that's just once, not, it's not so common. He's being concerned about something that's not so common. It's not literally once every 70 years. Or likely, if it was once every 70 years, he could have just calculated when the last time it happened, and he knew that for the next 69 years, he doesn't have to worry about it happening. It's almost that if it really was 70 years, there was no need to be concerned about it. Yeah, Chachamim says it dangerous to enter a ruin, like a ruined building. So, is it dangerous or is it not dangerous? Can be. Yeah. Do you remember the answer Chachamim give? Do you remember? They used to say that there is Shadim in there. Yeah, let's forget, let's forget the demons. Okay, now I'm talking about walls. I'm talking about walls falling. Okay, that's the, the right Gemara, Bochir, right? Chachamim tell us if it fell recently, then it's safe to go inside. But if it's an old ruin, you shouldn't go inside. The logic, if it just collapsed, likely it's not going to continue collapsing. It already fell into the place where it is. But once you wait too long after a building has collapsed, it could collapse more. Imagine somebody once said, the prob no one should, please don't make a clip out of this for me. Uh, okay, they said the probability of having a bomb on a plane is one out of a million. But the probability of having two bombs on a plane is one out of a billion. So next time you travel, just bring a bomb in your backpack. You know, it's in the mentality of, you're going to reduce, or and I'm, I hope the math worked out over there somehow, I'm not a mathematician, but it, it's the idea of it being something that is, is so not common. Roshana. <laughs> I was once with someone in the airport. I don't know if I should tell you this story. Once someone in the airport, and somebody pointed to us and said, oh, those, uh, your iPhone cord is hanging out of your pants. RTT. They thought it was our iPhone charger. And so 
the guy said, no, it's not a, it's a, it's not on my iPhone charger. So what is it? And the idiot, in the middle of security, he says, those are my detonation cords. First off, it's against the law, but you're not allowed to joke about those things. Definitely not there, but it's a big sign everywhere. And I like that. I don't know this guy. I don't know him. I don't want to know him. I don't have nothing to do with him. And now you have Mishnah Roshanam. How do we declare a new moon? So the witnesses have to come to court, and they say, we saw the moon. If the members of the Sanhedrin don't know what this person, they've never heard of this person. He's not known to the court in, in a positive way. Meaning he's a negative way. It's not known to the court in a positive way. We have no relationship that we can trust this person. We send another person with him to testify. Initially, the Bedin would accept testimony about the new man from any person. When the Minim, the heretics, began to ruin our testimonies, the rabbis instituted that we could only send someone that we're familiar with. So understand what's happening here. Someone goes to their local Bedin, and they say, the Bedin of 23, and they say, we want to testify we saw the moon. They say, great, we, we appreciate that, we have to send you the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim. The problem is we send you the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim, nobody knows who you are. So we have to send another person with him. Now that worked, that we accepted testimony from anybody initially, only because we trusted all Jewish people. But there came a time that the Minim, whichever group, they say in English the, the Baitusim, which we've studied about them, but whatever group is meddling with the Jewish calendar because they calculate things differently, we no longer could appreciate at face value that every Jewish person would be telling us the truth. In the second Mishnah, Barishona, initially, Hayu Masi'in Masu'ot. They would light torches. Tell me how the system worked. So in Tzfat, in Tzfat, the Bedin had accepted a testimony regarding the new month. Or, sorry, in Yerushalayim, they accepted a testimony in the new month. They needed the Bedin in Tzfat to know that now is going to be Rosh Chodesh. So what do they do? They light a torch on the mountaintop. The next mountaintop over, they light a torch. The next mountaintop, they light a torch. And all the way till it spreads all over Israel, when you see the fires on the top of the mountains, you know that it's going to be Rosh Chodesh. That's how it used to work. hakutim. When the kutim, they ruined it for us, they instituted that messengers have to travel around to let people know. So why would the kutim get involved in our new month? They were enemies of our son Henry. So how do you prank the Jewish people? Yeah, you start lighting fires on hilltops. And then, they start lighting, and then all of a sudden, it's the 12th day of the month, and every, it's really not going to work on the 12th day of the month. It's the 28th day of the month, and everybody is lighting fires, and now we got the Jewish people to celebrate Rosh Chodesh two days early. And so we can no longer trust the fire method, and we had to send messengers. Uh, section uh, Mishnah number 3 and then 8, it tells you exactly how it used to work. Also in number 9, let's look to source... That's the source 13. Rabban Gamliel had in his attic different diagrams of the moon in different shapes. Why? He 
he would say, listen, that's the way the moon looks. Did you see the moon this way? Did you see the moon that way? What exactly, what did you see? Show me. Because he knew that these people were regular people that didn't really know much about the moon. So he drew a bunch of diagrams in his attic. Maaseh, there's a story, Shabau Shnaim Vamu, two came and they said, We saw the moon in the morning, we saw it in the east, and in the evening, we saw it in the west. Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri says, They are lying witnesses. Why it would be impossible to see the moon that way. Uh, who is Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri? What do we have a famous halakha from him? Not a halakha, but a minhag that developed from his halakha. Maseret Berachot, our rabbis discuss the blessings over the five grains. And they mention rice. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri says that rice... Though it's not exactly one of the five grains, it should have a blessing. Well, he did consider rice to be one of the five grains. Though the Bedin ruled against him, because he believed it was a staple food for people. Uh, this custom that Ashkenazim have not to eat rice on Pesach seems to stem originally from a desire to satisfy all opinions. That's the root of Ashkenazi laws, not to decide on one opinion, but to try to do all of them. And as such, when it comes to Pesach, they wanted to make sure they don't eat things that according to one of the Chachamim in the Talmud would be considered chametz. And because of that, they refrained from eating rice. There is a theory like that out there. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Kafich, he believed, where did the Ashkenazim get the custom of Kinyot from? He quotes a famous book, the Bissamim Rosh. Do you, have you heard of the Bissamim Rosh? I for sure have told you about him. Bissamim Rosh is a responsa, halachic responsa, that was discovered a few hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, more likely, and it was attributed to one of the early Chachamim. But it became clear fairly quickly that this book is a forgery, and that this book was written by one of the early Reform rabbis in Europe, and he attributed the book to an early Chacham for the reason it would have more credibility. So the Bissamim Rosh says that a letter came to him about the custom of Kitniyot and Ashkenaz, and he says that this is a minhag of the Karaim. It's a Karaite custom, because they don't have an oral tradition, they don't know to determine what are the five grains. So anything that looks like a grain or sounds like a grain, they don't eat. And the Jews and Ashkenaz were influenced by the Karaites, and that's why they still have this minhag. And anybody who can uproot a Karaite minhag that has taken root in the Jewish people, they should have a mitzvah. Now regardless of whether or not this letter is real, Hav Kapach very much believed that the custom of Kitniyot is directly from the Karaites. The Karaites don't have an oral law. And as such, there are groups of Karaites who do eat corn, those who don't eat corn, those who have beans and rice. Uh, I have a number of books in my library from Karaite Chachamim, and th there's, there's not a consensus among everybody which Kitniyot are permissible and which are not. And we have a consensus. And so when Ashkenazim tell us, no, but there are other things that are not written in the Torah that we're not supposed to eat on Pesach, that should always give you red flags and say, wait a second. If it's not written in the Torah, and it's not written in the Talmud, then where did it come from? And if you can't exactly tell me where it comes from, then I should be concerned that someone is trying to add something to the Torah. Normally when someone is adding something to the Torah, it's not because they're, they're adding to the Torah, it's because they're not really clear on how to interpret a verse in the Torah. When someone doesn't know how to interpret a verse in the Torah, you should know for certain they are not a follower of our Chachamim, who have a clear tradition on the verses in the Torah. So Yochanan ben Nuri, he says, hey, uh, this witness is a lying witness. When they came to Yavne, the Bedin of Rabban Gamliel accepts them. So it could be 
And there are those who suggest that these are parallel rabbinic courts that are running on, on different circuits. But they come to Rabban Gamliel. Two more came and said, and so Rabban Gamliel, he accepts these witnesses that Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri said are for sure lying. Two more came and they said, We saw it at the right time. But at the time of its Ibu, we didn't see it. How could they testify that we saw the woman give birth and then the next day we saw her pregnant? Meaning, it's impossible. The way in which they describe them seeing the moon shows that they saw the moon but then they didn't see. The, it doesn't match. Our Chachamim know exactly when the month is going to be. But we have a law that requires witnesses to come forth and tell us when that will be. Amar lo Yoshua. says, I see your words. So what you find is Rabban Gamliel is adamant to justify the rabbinic calendar. And our seems to be a little bit lax on accepting witnesses that other Chachamim clearly think are lying. But he knows anyways that it's the right time. And Rabban Gamliel is accepting these witnesses in order to make sure that no one meddles with the calendar. Now, let me, let me share with you the following story, which is certainly going to upset you. And likely, given the time that it is right now, I won't be able to finish all of the details of the story. But the story is very important. Why? Because it's going to remind you exactly of what happened with Rebbe Eliezer ben Hokonos. So let's read together. In Masechet, in Mishnah Roshana. In the next chapter. Shalach lo Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel heard. Did I skip a chapter? No. Rabban Gamliel heard that Rabbi Yoshua had said that he accepts that this witness is a liar, contrary to the opinion of Rabban Gamliel. Shalach lo Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel sends him a messenger saying, Gozrani alecha, I decree on you. What is this language of I decree on you? This is an official summons. Like you have to do what I'm saying right now. You don't have a choice. It's not, I'm using my government, my governmental power, my political power to force you to do something that you don't want to do. Gozrani alecha, I'm decreeing on you. I decree that you have to come to me with your staff and your money, meaning bring your stick and your wallet. The two things you can't carry on Yom Kippurim. It's not allowed to be carried. I decree that on your Yom Kippurim, when you think it's Yom Kippurim and you plan to be fasting and you plan to be praying, you should come in front of me and publicly violate your Yom Kippurim. I declare what the calendar is. You don't get to just decide, hey, the calendar is the way I decided. We declare that it's not Yom Kippurim, so on your Yom Kippurim, you're coming to me and violating it in public. Rabbi Akiva finds Rabbi Yehoshua in distress. Now, tell me where else we saw Rabbi Akiva finding people distressed. Rabbi Akiva shows up when the Chachamim are distressed, where? Chamim are walking on the Temple Mount. What happens? What do they see? They see the foxes and the Kodesh Kodeshim. And they start crying. And what does uh, Rabbi Akiva do? He starts laughing. 
And they said, Rabbi Akiva, how are you laughing? He said, you tell me why you're crying, I'll tell you why I'm laughing. And he ends up comforting them, and they say, Akiva, you comforted us. There are many places where Rabbi Akiva shows up, and he is the personality of the one who is comforting people. Why? Somebody has to sit down on an agadic level and do research on the personality of Rabbi Akiva and figure out why he's always, always connected to stories of comfort here. Amarlo, he tells him, he tells him, I have a way to show you, according to the Torah, that everything that Rabban Gamliel does is correct. I mean, it's already done. These are the festivals of HaKadosh Baruch which you shall proclaim, which you shall proclaim them in your season. What does it mean that you shall proclaim? Ben bizmanam, ben shelo bizmanam. En li mo'adot, en la elu. The Torah is telling you when does the holiday happen? On the 15th of Nisan. But what happens, if, when does it happen? When you call it the 15th of Nisan. From here you learn that whenever the Bedin Hagadol decides what day of the year it is, that's what they, HaKadosh Baruch accepts that calculation. Balot el Rabbi Dosab in Harkinas. He came to Rabbi Yosib, Rabbi Dosab in Harkinas. Amarlo, he says, if we begin to say that maybe Rabban Gamliel's acceptance of witnesses is incorrect, then every single Bedin that has ever decided the Jewish calendar before, you're opening up a Pandora's box. Once you start, you won't be able to stop. There's a, a number of halachot like this. When a Bedin issues a get, there's a halacha that we're not allowed to My father here, the halachic terminology of another Bedin's get that we don't like? Very good. We don't take back a get. We don't start to say that get was not kasher. The reason? It's very dangerous. We're going to create mamzerim retroactively. We have a halakha in place that in ma'arin lo motzim la'azal get. We don't we don't start to take back other batedin's decisions because we start that avalanche. It will never end. Everybody will be a mamzer. What? It has happened. Like with things like uh, conversions. Right. So retroactively and nullifying a conversion and leaving. So here's how here's how it used to work. It used to work that when a bedin in Poland converted someone to Judaism. And then that person traveled and ended up in Morocco, for example. And they came in front of the community there. And they said, are you Jewish? Yes, I converted the Bedin in Poland. Here's my certificate, or here's my letter, here's my... They would say, okay, you converted. They didn't start digging what were the standards, how did it work, did they follow our curriculum, which book did he read, All because what's going to happen next? The whole world will end up being non-Jewish. There was a certain acceptance of other Bateidin, so that tells us that a Tamit Chacham does not allow something to come out from under their hands that is not kasher. We rely on other Tamit Chachamim. Now, what happens in a world where you don't know anymore who's a Tamit Chacham and who's not? So, if we begin this, it'll be a very dangerous precedent. The Moshe, Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Why did you not tell us the names of the 70 elders? 
אלא ללמד, to teach us, שכל שלושה ושלושה שעמדו בבית על ישראל, that every court of three that has ever stood up for the Jewish people, every Bedin and the Jewish people, הרי הוא כבית דינו של משה. Their authority is like the authority of the Bedin of Moshe. When we marry off a couple, we tell them to say, הרי את מקודש הדין, כדת משה וישראל. This responsibility, if I'm a Bedin that's trying to emulate the Bedin of Moshe, means if I deviate from the Torah of Moshe, then I shouldn't be considered a Bedin anymore. So long as I'm not deviating from the Torah of Moshe, I have the authority of the Bedin of Moshe. So when a couple gets married in a ceremony that is against Halakha, how can they say, You could say everything else until Kedat Moshe Yisrael. Once you're Kedat Moshe Yisrael, you're assuming that everything is being done properly according to the Shulchan Aruch. But, okay. Says uh, the Mishnah, Natal maklo Rabbi Yosha hears this and he understands that for the greater good, he has to give in. And he takes his stick and his staff, his money, Understand, you are the Chacham of the Jewish people. And you are being forced to violate Yom HaKippurim in public. What does it say about somebody who violates Yom HaKippurim? That soul has to be excommunicated, cut off from its people for eternity. I mean, Rabbi Yoshua here is gambling with his future. His entire olam about here. He puts on his stick, takes his money, and he comes in Yom Kippurim in front of Rabban Gamliel as if it's a weekday. Amad Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel stands up. Unshako al rosho. And he kisses him on his head. Amarlo, he tells him, Bo v'shanom. Come in peace. Rabbi v'talmidi, my rabbi and my student. Rabbi v'chokma, my rabbi in wisdom. V'talmidi, and my student, that you accepted upon yourself my halachic ruling. It's a happy end to a very sad story. Ultimately, Rabban Gamliel says, I can't allow for rogue opinions to exist in Am Yisrael when I'm trying to rally everyone together. But this isn't something personal. Come to me in peace. He calls him my rabbi and my student. You're greater than me in wisdom. But at the end of the day, the decision is in my hands and I must make the decision that I know to be right. And in that regard, you are Talmudi, you are my student, and you've shown me that by accepting my halachic ruling. Yeah? The question on the story is it starts with Rabbi Yoshua first accepting the witnesses. Or am I getting the... No, Rabbi Yoshua was accepting the second opinion that said the witnesses were not kosher. Okay, so the, he came... Okay, yes, yes. And so I think if I had to summarize right now, because we're going to have a few more classes on Rabban Gamliel. For right now, we should know that Rabban Gamliel is a man on a mission. His mission is to unite Am Yisrael and to save us at any cost, even if that means standing up against other opinions that might be right. But for the sake of unity, he has to shut them down. And this is something amazing, because it almost sounds counter to fighting for the sake of unity. I have an article titled that. Sometimes you have to fight for the sake of unity. It almost seems... And I, I'm not connecting Agadic dots. So if you want to study this on an Agadah level, you should. I'm almost connecting the persecution of Rabbi Yoshua by Rabban Gamliel to the persecution of Rabbi Yezab ben Hukonus by Rabbi Yoshua. I wonder of the cycle here. At the end of the day, Rabbi Yoshua now becomes that rogue voice in the Ben Midrash that Rabbi Yezab ben Hukonus was 
before he was thrown out. And Rabban Gamliel is doing everything he can, not only not to allow for rogue opinions, but to keep Rabbi Yoshua in. Perhaps the problem with Rabbi Leza ben Hukunus then was that nobody could get him to accept the opinion of the Sanhedrin. What's the difference between him and Rabbi Yoshua? The difference between him is that Rabbi Yoshua ultimately says, after I've argued, after I've discussed, at the end of the day, when it comes down to the final halakha, I will stand in front of the Bedin and Yavne, in front of the Sanhedrin, with my money, with my stick, because that what needs to be done. And I think that here you see, at least for this story, the happy ending. Bo v'shalom, come in peace, Rabbi v'talmidin. If only we could all argue like that. Next week we'll be discussing the next part of this sugya, of the life of Rabban Gamliel.